Hi, everybody. What was my favorite part? Everybody gets to say hello. All these wonderful humanoids out there. Hello, hello. <laughs> That's awesome. Grazie, grazie, molto grazie. Love it. So here's um, welcome back, everybody. For those of you who may be new to what we do here, um, starting a year ago during the COVID thing, we just started spontaneously hanging out together and um, we kind of just can't seem to stop. <laughs> I love it. This is like my favorite gig uh, because I just show up, I do a little spontaneous riff. And then most of the time it's just, we just hang. The questions are always so rich. Um, one was typed in from Tim that I'm gonna actually use my little introductory riff on. A really great question about emptiness. Um, and so this is the place to bring your questions, your offerings, your challenges. If you hear, see something that doesn't work for you, um, now's the time to talk about it. So I love it. It's open forum, very relaxed. I always prefer kind of a live interaction because then I can get clarification with your with your questions and comments. You know, I get a little bit of feedback going on. So a couple um, announcements. We usually do a five minutes of little thingies. Um, I'm trying to set up my next interview will be with Claire Johnson. She just wrote a fantastic book, which, which I was so happy to endorse for her. Best book on nightmares I've ever read. Um, I think she, it's called The Art of Transforming Nightmares. And Claire, a PhD, she is, I think she's the first person to get a PhD in lucid dreaming and she's a sweetheart. I adore her. She's so smart and she's so sensitive and this book is just fantastic. So we're gonna do a riff um, about this book, emphasizing how you can use lucidity principles to transform nightmares and to realize that she puts it so beautifully that night nightmares are just fantastic gifts, gifts in really ugly wrapping paper. What a great line, right? Um, every nightmare is some, some things, that, some part of you is calling out for healing, integration, holding. Hey, pay attention to me. It's really, really good stuff. Um, so that's coming up. And then I'm, I'm talking to some neuroscientists. There's some really interesting things in the works. But the really big news is just this week, after months, hundreds of hours of effort, the whole nightclub community, um, which is, I guess, my main, uh, most active platform these days, we've done a complete restructuring, redesign. We, we just launched that this week. And um, basically it will be offering something literally every day of the week, meditation group on Monday night, book study group on Tuesday night. We're about to finish Dreams of Light um, and transition into two other books. Um, uh, Wednesday webinars, we have a sleep doctor, Dr. Ed O'Malley, my dear friend. Um, some of you may know because we've already done some PowerPoint webinars with him. He's such a sharp guy. So the ability to actually literally have free consultations with, uh, with a certified sleep doctor about your sleep issues. Wednesday night that, Thursday this. Friday is when we'll be trying to release the uh, interviews, which are going to continue. Um, Saturday, Andy's really delightful free uh, movie night. And then Sunday, the book sharing group. Um, and so Andy's going to put in the column, there's a free link there a free link. There's a link to free offerings as part of inviting people in. We're, we're going to make the entire site available with, with each week offering a new aspect of it. Um, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of a 
I hate to use the word hard sell because this marketing thing is just so not my thing. But um, for a number of reasons, we have to increase um, a membership around that. And so we're going to grandfather in anybody who wants to come in forever at this original uh, fee structure thing. So check that out. But um, that's enough of the lemonade stand. I wanted to read um, my spontaneous riff for today. I usually spend five minutes talking about something and then we open it up. What occurred to me today was something I was working on this morning. I'm, I'm writing, I think some of you know two books, um, both of which are really about expanding my horizons uh, outside of the nocturnal arena into lucidity principles altogether, um, using lucidity again as code word for awareness and how awareness slash lucidity is beneficial day or night or even when you die. Lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. It also leads to lucid dying. <clears throat> and so I'm writing two books to kind of expand the meditation aspect of it. And um, this particular excerpt I wanna read, I was working on it this morning. I think it's important. And it, I was inspired to riff on this a little bit because of the real good question that I'm gonna start with that Tim wrote. So this is a little bit of a, a context prep for his quite good question. Um, and so the title of little, this little subsection, the, the name of this book, by the way, tentatively is, okay, I'm mindful. Now what? <laughs> Exploring the natural wonders of the mind. It's, a, it's simultaneously a critique of the mindfulness revolution, which is brilliant. I mean, the mindfulness re revolution is amazing. But it also has some shadow elements, some real sh shadow sides. McMindfulness, um, the fact that mindfulness itself does not liberate, it just pacifies. Um, and so I do a gentle critique and mostly just to support, okay, like now what, what can we do? And so I, I riff on a bunch of stuff, some of which is from my really long three-year retreat where some of this pra these practices are now in the public domain. So um, it's all about when you have that platform, just like lucid dreaming is a platform for all the nocturnal meditations, mindfulness is a platform to literally dozens of other meditations, um, some of which will be, um, cascading through, by the way, on the Monday night meditation group. That's why that group started. So this book is a way to introduce people to all these different practices that they may be completely unaware of. You know, there are dozens. So this is one section that I think is important that I want to share with you um, as a platform into um, our first question for today. So training or discovery. Meditation can be looked at in two different ways. The more relative and conventional way is that meditation tames and then trains the mind. Like any other discipline, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more you harvest the results. This is an entirely valid way to look at meditation, but the limitation with this view is that it is dualistic. The results are out there somewhere in the future and you have to work to acquire them. The second way to look at meditation is more radical, unconventional. This more absolute approach is based on the non-dual wisdom traditions and is therefore unfamiliar to many in the West. From this more ancient traditional perspective, the many qualities that meditation seems to develop are already present as innate qualities of the natural mind. Meditation simply serves to discover them, uncover them. Just remove the adventitious defilements. You know, you know what adventitious means? not inherent to, like, like dust. Just remove the adventitious defilements 
obscurations, clean off the dust and the golden qualities of the mind, of the meditative mind naturally shine forth. According to these traditions, we simply forgot. We forgot that we possess all these natural wonders of the mind. Meditation jogs your memory. From this stance, the results you're after are always already here, right now, present. You simply have to unearth them. While meditation shares a great deal with other disciplines, it's unique in this regard. I'm a concert level pianist and competitive tennis player. I can sit at my keyboard or stand on the tennis courts till I'm blue in the face, but I will never get better at either discipline. However, if I'm shown how to sit properly on my meditation cushion, I will get better at meditation. Even, even um, you know, the great master Trungpa Rinpoche once said, um, by simply taking the, the proper posture in meditation, sooner or later, you will find yourself meditating. Amazing statement. This, by the way, is, is why posture landscape, so to speak, is, is so important. When people ask me what we do at my meditation center, I sometimes playfully say, well, we do nothing, but we do it really well. <laughs> Have you noticed how hard it is to do nothing well? It's hard because we're not human beings, we're human doings, right? So doing nothing well, which by the way, is also connected to Bardo Yoga. If you want to die well, learn to do nothing well, because that's what happens when you die. You're forced to do nothing. That's not so easy for human doings, not human beings. <clears throat> Meditation, yeah, we're doing it, doing it really well. This mischievous, state, this mischievous maxim will come into play when we talk about some of the more advanced meditations coming up. So just two more paragraphs. Knowing about these seemingly opposite approaches to meditation helps us understand where the results come from. The relative way is more the path of effort and training while the absolute way is more the path of relaxation and detraining. Why is this important? First, it helps us to relax. Sometimes people just try too hard when they meditate and that effort can backfire. Secondly, while meditation may initially feel contrived and even artificial, it's actually the most natural thing you could ever do. Ironically, meditation only feels contrived at first because of all the contrivances that have accrued to obscure the wonders of the natural mind. In other words, meditation only feels unnatural in the beginning because of contrast because of all the artificialities that have accumulated over our lives. In terms of mindfulness meditation, when you start to meditate, you're going against the monumental tide of all your mindless habits, all your previous training and distraction. This is the other thing that's worth throwing into the mix. Again, I'm throwing in some comments. You know the word for meditation, right? You know it by now in Tibetan, what is it? Gom, G-O-M, transliterated to become familiar with. This has so many interesting implications and applications. One of which, which is colossally important, is that whether we know it or not, we're always meditating. We're always becoming increasingly familiar with either mindfulness or mindlessness, either presence or distraction. And so this explains right off the bat why we're all so good at being mindless because we practice it all the time. It's our default. Literally what neuroscientists talk about is a default mode network. It's where the mind has been trained to go, a fault in both senses, as in chasm and, in, and mistake. 
It's a fault that we karmically create every time we habituate the distraction. We make that fault into Grand Canyon and we just fall into it naturally. Why? Because we've cut this groove naturally. I mean, I shouldn't say naturally, naturally for the ego. So this is super important. When you sit down in meditation and your mind is like, geez, man, I can't control my mind. Look, it's just like crazy. Well, you're simply bearing witness to your proficiency in distraction. <laughs> you're bearing witness to all the fruits of a lifetime. And if you believe in this thing, lifetimes of the unwitting practice of non-lucidity, mindlessness, discursiveness, distraction. And so what we're trying to do is turn the massive, this massive Titanic, we're trying to change that course. And so, you know, you're not gonna stop the Titanic on a dime. There's so much karma, so much habit, so much momentum that has to dissipate. And then you can slowly start to, to, to turn this behemoth, this karmic momentum around. You've been unwittingly trained into distraction and mindlessness for so long and to such an extent that it now feels natural, but it's not natural. Mindlessness is totally artificial. It's a twisting and tangling of the natural mind. Mindfulness is actually what's natural. Let me say that again. Mindfulness is actually the natural state. Just like for the nocturnal people, nocturnal meditation people, just like lucidity, this may be an outrageous proclamation, but it's true. Lucid dreams are the natural type of dream. We've been trained into non-lucidity. Mindfulness lucidity is, is what's natural. And meditation does the untwisting and untangling that reveals this radical truth. We like to buy natural things at the grocery store, products with no artificial ingredients. All my editors, all my writers tell me, you know, you got to throw as many images, as much concretized imagery, as many metaphors and analogies. So um, this is one that came to mind for me. We like to buy natural things at the grocery store, products with no artificial colorings or ingredients. Meditation is the most, most green organic product you could ever buy. It's a return to nature, the nature of your own mind. <clears throat> Once you get the hang of it, meditation becomes the most natural thing in the world. Thirdly, if you're keeping track and then I'm done, this more unconventional approach to meditation is also really good news because it helps explain why the results can occur so quickly. Because you're engaging in a practice that is in harmony with the way things really are, a template that is in resonance with reality, once you get over the initial hump of resistance, you may be surprised at how rapidly you progress because now you're doing something that's in resonance with reality. That's why when you kind of click into the flow of the zone of meditation, you know, you've had this experience, it just feels like the most natural, easiest thing in the world to do because you've literally in tantric language, you've entered the action. You've entered the flow of the natural state and it feels so natural. It feels like a homecoming. Instead of spending your, uh, uh, spending your life swimming upstream, you finally relax and let the natural current take you where, you where you really wanted to go all along. So that's my riff. Again, this also applies to lucidity that um, lucid dreamers, you know, the relative approach to, to lucidity is training, learning the induction methods, learning all the techniques, oh, totally valid, totally valid. But the more radical kind of Western contribution, again, is lucidity is just the natural state. And so 
Therefore, the only thing you need to do both for success in the diurnal or nocturnal meditations is just what? One word, relax, relax, open, relax. Everything you're looking for is right there, actually right here. And so I wanted to read this because uh, Tim had sent in this really good question. And so I'll read it and run, run with this a little bit and then it's open, um, open territory for you all. So I'll read the question, then I'll run the commentary on it. This is a good one. Andrew has often spoken about the state of emptiness or nothingness achieved by Buddhas and highly advanced beings. Sounds like a lot like annihilation. Can you please share how it is different and why we should seek it? Yeah. Good question, amigo. Uh, so I'm going to take this apart a little bit with your permission and let's, because it's such a good question, we're going to mm, divide and conquer a little bit. So, yeah, so emptiness is arguably um, the core, it's, it's the center in, in, in the kind of tantric language, it's the center of the mandala of all Buddhism. Um, emptiness, everything in Buddhism circumambulates emptiness. Um, everything, it's, it's fantastic on one level. Shakespeare, right? Much ado about nothing. Everything circumambulates nothing. But here's the kicker. It's not nothing. It's no thing. So understanding emptiness is, is a, uh, to say it's a big deal is a, is a massive understatement. It's a colossal undertaking to understand what emptiness is. It's not nothingness, it's no thingness. Let me just change one thing here. And so therefore, um, that's a really important thing. In fact, if you understand and then eventually experience emptiness altogether, it's actually fullness, really. Emptiness really means fundamentally empty of self-nature. It means that if you take a very close look at anything, you won't find any essential thingness there. Everything arises in a deep ecological way. Everything arises dependent on a vast nexus of causes and conditions extending throughout the globe and extending throughout history. Everything arises in dependence on everything else. So um, emptiness is a nothingness, it's, it's everythingness. Empty of self means full of other. And so this also gives rise to things like compassion. And so when you, <clears throat> the question is like, why should we seek it? Well on one level, because it's the, it's the essence of compassion. And this is one way to know if you've actually experienced it <clears throat> because the spontaneous affective expression of this emptiness is actually a fullness, a radiance, tremendous compassion. So if you feel like you may have like tuned into emptiness, but you're not living your life in the service of others, then you haven't experienced it because that automatic reflexive expression of this emptiness is compassionate activity. It's, it's one metric, it's one way to know if someone's actually actualized this to some degree. You become more and more selfless. So the other thing that's super important here, Tim, is that um, emptiness is not something that's achieved, it's something that's recognized. This is important. It's not something that it's, that's achieved, it's recognized. Emptiness and this is also really important. Emptiness is not the source of reality. It's not the source of things. Emptiness is the essence of everything. It's both cause and effect. It's not a location. This is really important because 
Otherwise, it's very easy to think, oh, I somehow have to return to emptiness or I have to get to emptiness, I have to get someplace. This is why Norman Fisher writes so beautifully that, you know, um, emptiness slash enlightenment, by the way, this is another reason in Buddhist language, like why you might want to actualize it because it's synonymous with enlightenment is it's not a destination, it's a false destination. And so you never achieve it. It's like, it's like achieving your feet. You don't achieve your feet. You might look down and recognize that you have them. In fact, trying to, it's like Trung Prabhupada once said, it, it, the more refined levels of the path, striving itself is the only obstacle. Seeking for something presumes the absence of that which you seek. And so this, this view is super important because otherwise we, we end up looking for it when it's not, it's not a matter of looking. In fact, the looking can actually prevent you from finding it. This is why when the investigations that point this out, for some of you, these language might mean something, might mean something like the Mahamudra investigations or, or the dialectics and the teachings on the Jamaka, for those of you who know these terms, you know, they, they give you all these tools for looking, looking, investigating, investigating, and they often say, not finding is the best finding. Not finding is the best finding. So it's, it's, um, it's right here, right now. It sounds, so back to you, it sounds like a, a, a lot like annihilation, which most of us don't want. Well, it's the annihilation of the ego. <laughs> and yes, ego does not want that. Um, it's the annihilation of all those adventitious defilements I was talking about. It's, it's more appropriately, the term is negation. All, literally in Hindu thought, the via negativa, neti, neti, not this, not that. In Christian theology, the apophatic way, the way of negation. And so that's why, uh, Tim, there's so much negation on the path because you know they, they sometimes talk about the two extreme views um, one being a misinterpretation of emptiness, which is nihilism. The other one is a misinterpretation of reality, which is eternalism, thinking that things really exist. And so, Tim, the reason there's so much negating, really, even, even the terms for enlightenment are, are negation terms, you know, nirvana. N-I-R, Sanskrit, is a negative term. Nirvana, to extinguish, to blow out. Niroda, cessation. Nirvikalpa, to deconstruct, nisprapancha, to you know, deconstruct proliferation. So the reason there's so much cutting at first, so much slashing negation is because um, it's what Pullen Prabhupada refers to the extreme path to the middle. We're, we're so much eternalists. We so much believe that things exist that in order to, way off, to find our way back to the middle, to reality, um, which is not the middle way between the two, by the way, it's just called the middle way. We have to cut, 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 negate, negate, negate. And so that's why there's so much negation at first um, because we have to get rid in a certain way, we are all extremists. We're all fundamentalists in a very deep way. We just don't even know it. We're extremists in our belief that, that things are truly existent. That's a form of extremism. And so to find our way back into the middle, initially there has to be a little bit of slashing and burning purifying, cutting. And that's why the path is a little bit painful. It's, it's really why one of the reasons I wrote my first book, Power and Pain, is that, you know, it's like it's necessary surgery, getting rid of all this stuff. It's just, you know, removing these defilements. So what else did I say here? Um, 
Oh yeah. So one last thing, and then and then we'll just um, let this go for now because it's such a huge topic. I, I shared with some of you that I, I had a really kind of interesting session uh, with a group of a couple other people, with a neuroscientist, also a, con a contemplative neuroscientist, really cool guy. And he said something very compelling here that ties into meditation, where he said literally, resting in the present moment is annihilation. Wow, what an interesting statement. Resting in the present moment is annihilation. And what he was meaning, again, using neuroscientific principles is that when you're, when you're actually resting in, in the present moment, it boycotts, it interrupts, it annihilates your storylines. Um, and that's all that ego is. Um, ego is just this really sad, pathetic, ongoing narrative, a really sad story with an even sadder ending. It's called death. But see, this is another reason why you might want to actualize emptiness, because when you actualize emptiness, fullness, then there is no such thing as death. Death only applies to the world of form. So that's another reason. You want to reach immortality? Die now. <laughs> Wake up to the truth of emptiness now. Death only applies to the world of form. Ego is the archetype of form, exclusive identification of form. And so if we can differentiate, disidentify, let go of our exclusive identification to form, that's one way to look at what the spiritual path is we actually kind of back our way into the truth, into um, emptiness, into reality. And then that path is a little bit like death in slow motion. It's not very comfortable. It is a type of death. You have to let go. That's why many, many people parenthetically on the spiritual path have so many death-related dreams. They're not, they're not literal. They're symbolic of transformation and release. Have you had some of these? I mean, you know, so many practitioners tell me about all these death dreams and even suicide dreams. They're extreme, extremely rarely are they literal or precognitive. They're usually symbolic. It's because there has to be this dying process. You know, if you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. So Tim, thanks for a great platform. I probably should let that one go. Otherwise we'll be here all day on that one. Great question, my friend. So two more came in and then we can go live. Charles Lee. Oh, I guess this is a... Yes, um, two books. Yes, Seeing the Freeze. I know both these books. Meditations and Emptiness and Dependent Arising. Yep, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. They're both really good. My personal favorite book, just because it's so pithy, um, and I'm a little biased because he was my main teacher for so many years, uh, Kempo Tsutrum Gyamso Rinpoche, um, Progressive Stages of meditation on emptiness. This is a masterpiece of a book. It's about 120 pages, very pith, right to the point. It's not easy because it's so direct. Plus it's not easy because emotionally, this is also important. Ego doesn't want to hear this. You know, it's like, again, Trump would say ego cannot attend its own funeral. This is the funeral for ego. That's why like you put, put it in your question, most of us don't want it because most of us don't want a funeral, right? But um, in 120 pages, Kempo Rinpoche goes through the five kind of classic stages of meditations on emptiness, um, giving the doctrinal traditional supports, and then most specifically practices. And another reason I love this book so much is with each of these five stages, he has a dream contemplation. Because this is really, dream yoga is just a fantastic place to discover the truth of emptiness. Um, Mingi Rinpoche goes so far as to say that, you know, the, the, the daytime classroom is tough when it comes to emptiness. The nighttime classroom is easier. 
you said you can learn more about emptiness in your dreams because you're experiencing more the empty nature, the de-reified nature of your mind in the dreamscape. But those are both good books. I would toss in as well, Kempo Rambache's book. So Beatrice, is there a way to raise humans from infancy so they stay lucid and don't get conditioned to believe in a separate solid self? And so they, they wouldn't have to unlearn habitual contraction. What a great question. <laughs> oh, if there is Beatrice, let me know. Um, whew, you know, the closest we can get, and let me just say my, my view on this whole Tuku phenomena is what they do with, with uh, these reincarnated masters. You may have seen, there's so many movies now, probably a dozen on this topic. Um, Hidden Child, I mean, there's so many, um, so many movies about how when a meditation master dies, you know, they go to the Dalai Lama, Karmapa or somebody, and they, they wanna find him ASAP for just this reason. Because the sooner you can find one of these precious gems, and bring them into a sequestered environment, exactly like you're talking about, Beatrice, the less detox is involved. So um, is there a way to do that? Yikesy dikesy, I wish there was, but unfortunately there isn't because, you know, this is actually interesting because this is like an inner version of Pure Lands, really. This is why Pure Land teachings and Pure Land principle are so important because unfortunately, just because of the way relative reality is we're born into an impure environment, into an impure land. We're inculcated, toxified by all these wrong views. And, and so in, a, in a, using this particular metaphor in a very real way, <clears throat> the meditative path is really a, a process of detoxification. I, I felt this acutely when I did my really long retreat. Nice glasses there, Andy. Those are awesome, man. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, that's why I wrote my book, Power and Pain, because the first three or four months of this thing were just a blast furnace for me. It was so hard. And so I thought about exactly what you're saying here. I thought about it. It's like, why, why is it so hard? I'm, I'm just sitting in this room by myself, you know, almost 24-7. Why is that so hard? It started to feel like, you know, as I walked down the hall into my room, which started to feel like a prison chamber at first. You know, I was really, really struggling. And I started to do a kind of analytic meditation. I was like, what is going on here? Why is this so hard for me? And I realized I, I've never been a substance abuser in the classical sense, but I realized on a very real level, I was going through a kind of detox from the substance abuse of reality itself, turning reality into a substance, a form. And so is there a way to do it? I, boy, you know, the only thing we can do is if you have a family is, is try to create as much of this type of environment of truth as you possibly can. Outside of that, I am all ears for suggestions. I mean, this is why we have spiritual communities. This is why we have retreat centers. This is why we, we go into these sequestered environments as a way to really either prevent this toxification process or detoxify. Um, but yeah, what you're saying is so true. We, we, we have to unlearn a great deal of habitual karmic contraction habits and the like. And it's like, remember I was, I was sharing, actually not in this session, in another group, Yuval Noah Harari, this great, you know, fantastic historian. He's written three landmark books in the last 10 years. The most famous one is Sapiens, 
And in this book, he talks about how the human Homo sapiens sapiens is really unique in the evolutionary spectrum of beings because unlike most beings who come out, you know, pretty much full cooked, mostly relatively compared to us, humans come out half baked. And that's, you know, I mean, you couldn't live for a day without a holding environment, a caring environment. And so therefore we are much more susceptible to the inculcation of these wrong views. And the other thing that's very interesting about the human brain, this is the work of Bruce Lipton, the epigeneticist, that um, the human brain, the great peril and promise of the brain, one of the great perils is that the human brain has so much power that we can actually literally learn perceptions. Other animals have to have direct perception in order to learn their reality. The brain is so powerful that you, you can, the brain can actually be trained. You can actually therefore inhabit, um, acquire the perceptions of others. Literally, you, you literally start to see the world through the eyes of others, your, your caretakers and your families of origins and the like. And so all this stuff ties in Beatrice to just a fantastic um, question on your part. And that's the best I can do with that one. So unless somebody else has something to ask, contribute or offer around that, I'll, I'll let that go for now. But if we have some live, live ones, more than welcome. Yeah, Chantal has a raised hand. Hey there, Andrew. <laughs> Hey, I just actually wanted to riff off what we were just talking about. Oh, cool. Run with it. Go. Of, of like children. So yeah. we obviously just passed Easter weekend and I sort of had a little bit of an argument with my um, sister and my brother who have children. And I was kind of saying to them, like, don't you think it's more healthy to like not teach them about like an Easter bunny that there's like an actual kind of thing out there that's delivering the eggs versus just having the little celebration of like hiding the eggs, but let it come from the parents. Don't create this like illusion of a rabbit. Because when I discovered it wasn't true, and I was like, a, like an elderly child when I finally figured it out, because I was just so like in this like imaginal world, I felt like there was a dissociation, like, well, what's actually real? And it's kind of traumatizing in a way. So I wanted your thoughts. I honestly thought of you this weekend. I'm like, what would Andrew say about like teaching kids about stuff? Because it seems like the path of like even the tulkus, like they go through life trying to detoxify to, to get to the essence of something. Oh my God, Andy's up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh yeah, nice job there, Andy. He's the <laughs> yeah, he's messing with us. Yes. <laughs> He is. And so I might sound like a Grinch, Andrew, but I just, no. I don't know, I'm kind of wrestling with this right now. Well, let, let me turn it back to you and then, then we can play a little uh, tennis here. Um, what do you think? I mean, what, where do you land with all this? Are, are, you, are you a parent, by the way? I, I am not a parent. Okay. okay. But anyway, irrespective of that, where, where do yeah. you go with this? What would you, what would you like to see? How does this land with you? For me, kind of seeing like, I guess the pathologies, I guess you could say growing up, believing in things that weren't necessarily there. I kind of feel like it maybe made me not as, how can I say it? Like looking at things for what it is. Like I kept trying to find magical in, in, in certain things. So I feel as though like it shouldn't, I think you should actually kind of like, you know, teach kids what is real, like what's actually real. So if you're going to have an Easter egg hunt, let it come from the parents. That's sort of my, my thing. 
Yeah, again, this is this is a fantastic question. I mean, it, it really, there's so many avenues to run with this. One thing that needs to be borne in mind is that we, we have to really be aware of um, both physiological and psychological um, limitations that are part and parcel of the growing up trajectory, right? That there are, there are certain, you know, it's really not until, I mean, just to give you one um, of many examples, it's not until you're like 24, 25, that you're, the executive functions of your brain are even there, right? You know, right. The, the prefrontal cortex is fully online. And so at each stage of, of physical maturation, there's a corresponding stage of psychological development. And so th this requires just exquisite sensitivity and understanding of the whole developmental process altogether, all the things that are involved with it. And for those of you who are parents out there or who are thinking about being parents, I, I might recommend one thing before I forget it. Um, I've been talking a little bit about Bruce Lipton's really quite, there's a reason this was a bestseller book, Biology of Belief. He has, um, he's a really clever guy. He's a very brave scientist. He has a chapter in there uh, on the um, conscious parenting that, that should be like mandatory reading. It's just such a sensitive and again, rigorous uh, look at the responsibilities of parenthood, what's involved, taking everything I've said here and so much more about how in fact we hand off our worldviews to, to our progeny, how um, there's just a tremendous responsibility involved here, how literally, you know, especially in the early stages, we, we digest and metabolize experience for our children. We literally feed them. It's like the images, like when, you know, birds, sometimes the parent will actually eat the food and then regurgitate into the baby. I mean, that's, that's the perfect metaphor, you know? So the, our, our children live on our regurgitated reality. And so, wow, I mean, it's just such a fantastic question. It, it's, it kind of stops my mind just because it's so bloody big. I, I think on one level, allegiance to reality really should supersede virtually everything. And, and so for instance, like hiding people from death. You know, again, I think of Trump Rinpoche when in Born in Tibet, he, he talked about how, unlike in the West where death is, you know, virtually like, it's like pornography. Oh, we got to hide it off. We bury it. We, you know, we got to hide it from everybody. We then have this really unfortunate adverse relationship to a completely natural experience. And so Rinpoche talks about his, when part of his training was, <clears throat> and his experience was literally every week being just around death all the time, where it just then became, it was just no big deal. It's just like this natural process. And so um, this is the really delicate dance of, of the sensitivities of the perceptual and physiological structures of the developing child, and also realizing that truth is curative that awareness is curative. And that, you know, the earlier we, you know, children are like stem cells, right? The earlier we put them in a, in a like a crappy environment filled with fake news, you know, they, they, they imbibe and live in a world of fake news. And then, then they have this really painful process if they even ever come to admit it, that, wow, I've been completely polluted by all these wrong views. And, and so, um, if there are psychologists listening or, or parents and the like, I, I'm not a parent. So I, I also wanna be a little bit careful that I don't wanna speak merely as a ivory tower uh, you know, kind of scholar here. 
But I think these principles, you know, to me, the most important thing is really coming back to just the enormous responsibility that's involved in parenting. That, um, you know, it's, it's a colossal enterprise. And I'm sure you know this from your, from your own lived experience or from those around you. I mean, I know people who are literally lifelong casualties from inappropriate, undigested, unmetabolized, um, even sometimes obviously traumatic experiences. Their entire life is, is, is a kind of consequence, a quella of this sort of thing. So yes, I think what you're saying on one level is really true, but you know, we also then have to kind of titrate, you know, what that word, mean, the word means to kind of, we have to be sensitive enough to drip into their systems levels of truth that they can actually handle. And that level of sensitivity is, is, really, is really challenging depending on the circumstance, the environment, the sensitivity of the child. Some children are so, so amazingly hypersensitive and open that this becomes really a delicate situation. And so for me, it's, it's, it's easy. And I don't want to say that it's facile to think that spiritual principles can somehow rule the day here. I um, very readily open myself to psychologists, biologists, child psychologists, child, um, anybody who really works in this area in an integral kind of systemic way. That's the way I would approach it. So you don't just put all your eggs in the spiritual basket or all your eggs in the you know, physiological basket. You look at this in a really broad kind of systemic way for the deepest possible answers. But it's a fantastic question. Um, and I'm just gonna let it run for now because again, you know, they're just so great that we could do another whole class on this too. <laughs> thank okay. you. Andrew. Thank you so much. Oh, Joe no has problem. a, thank you. So Joe has a comment here. Yes, in the Tibetan tradition, they start, they start study at age five, but don't start meditating, meditation training until age eight. Yeah, I didn't actually know that, Joe, that it was actually around eight, age eight. That's somewhat interesting in, term of, in terms of Piaget's work, you know, formal operational thinking that starts around age seven. That's interesting. So thanks for that contribution. And if you have something else to say, Joe, feel free to come on. Barry, my dear friend, Barry, Waldorf schools are aimed to educate children nonviolently. Yes, exactly. So thanks for throwing that in, Barry. Um, Waldorf, I, again, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak with too much authority on these sorts of things. But Waldorf schools, and I'm sure there are others that some of you who have kids know about more than me, that are really kind of generated out of this aspiration. Um, so yes. Okay, Robert. Robert has a hand raised. Hey, Robert. Hi, Andrew. Um, um, I, I'm not sure where the question and um, where the question is in what I'm going to say. Okay. Um, it's just uh, I suppose I'm I've been doing lucid dreaming for about a year now, and uh, and I read your books on you know, dream yoga and clear light, and it's and it, it, it it's really got me interested in pursuing the dream yoga aspect of it, because my mind's not the same now as it was um, before I started thinking about all these things. Something curious happened to me today, and uh, I work in mental health um, rehabilitation, and a chap came to me with um, schizophrenia, mm -hmm. and um, he said to me, um, uh, I want to start a business. Um, I've, I've, I've got a website um, together, and it's, I'm going to teleport people. And uh, I'm saying to him, are you sure? Because I'm not sure there's the technology for that yet. He goes, yep, I can do it. And he wouldn't give up. And he said he could teleport me. So um, I kind of said to him, well, okay, 
Um, I'm not sure they're this. So he said, sit in your car and I'll teleport you. So I did that later on. I thought, well, you know, he's not going to be challenged on this. So, and I thought with all the stuff I get up to at night sometimes, I mean, teleporting is probably one of them anyway. So <laughs> I thought, <laughs> so I kind of um, did the exercise, sat in the car for 10 minutes, looking at the steering wheel. And of course, this is after work anyway. And of course, I didn't go anywhere. So in the morning, um, he was very disappointed. <laughs> um, he didn't. He, he thought he had teleported me, but he hadn't. So I phoned him up because he was a bit distressed about what do I do with all these visions? And um, so I said to him, you know, well, you know, um, you could write these things down. I said, and the main thing was, was um, you um, could you teleport yourself anywhere? And he said, no, only other people. And I said, oh well, there you are. There's that's the that's where you get the clarity, you know, on the on the reality of it. Can you do it yourself? Of course. Then after I started having that thought, I realised that um, is our nature of reality of um, what we think all the say all day long is is pretty much totally deluded <laughs> in terms of all my thoughts that I have aren't real. <laughs> so. And I thought, actually, at this moment, he's more lucid than I am because at least he knows. Yeah, well said. You know, and uh, I can't stop thinking about this now. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, first, first of all, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, it's interesting that one of the real noble aspects of what's called contemplative psychotherapy in, in the, some forms of transpersonal psychology is that that we, you know, um, mental, what we call mental illness is really just a matter of degree. And so on one level, when we see someone like a schizophrenic, and I have some traffic with this, my sister is a, a, actually institutionalized schizophrenic. So this is, this condition is not un, um, unknown to me. Um, and even levels of psychosis in the really extreme states, you know, borderline personality disorders, really intractable challenging states. Yes, yes, there are no doubt kind of organic underlying brain conditions, for sure. There are neurological correlates. But what's important is a little bit like what I'm hearing you saying is that you, you actually got a bit of a teaching transmission from this because you know these types of mental states that we label um, mental illness are just matters largely often matters of degree. And that therefore on, on many levels, we're, we're all a little bit psychotic. And, and so this actually carries some really substantive truth because you know psychosis is someone um, who's really not in contact with reality. Well, then, then what? That's completely depend the contingent on, on, upon what you call reality. And so, therefore, like with the, the schizophrenics and, and the you know the clinical psychotics, it kind of a broad stroke orienting generalization is that one of the things that perhaps could be used as a characterization of these extreme states of, of pathosis are, are high levels of, of reification, how solidly they take the contents of their experience and their mind. I mean, they, like my sister, she knows for sure she's talking to Hemingway. She knows for sure she's in these locations. Well, I might have a, 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 a thought about Hemingway. I don't feel like he's talking to me because I don't reify that experience. And so what, what we can therefore see, you know, it's, it's a little bit like we often um, see in others what we are blind to in ourselves. And so you saw in something other that helped you illuminate something within yourself. 
that in fact, what you're experiencing is exactly perhaps a lesson because that's maybe a little bit less suffering involved levels of confabulation, of reification, and therefore, you know, corrective levels of suffering. So that's what I, what I, you didn't ask it a direct question, but that's what comes to mind around that. I did want to ask something that you asked, that you presented at the very outset. You said something about, you know, your mind is being different. If you don't mind me asking you, what is it about your mind that is different when you started your question? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, um, you know, I've been thinking differently um, look, going through the dream yoga, say looking at the stages and stuff. But of course, um, you know, it's not just that one thing, everything I'm thinking about in terms of meditation, um, teaching mindfulness in the mental health thing is changing all the time. Um, compassion is becoming like a, a more of a living thing. Like even I, no, I noticed today, you know, um, what I did yesterday, I suppose, was an act of compassion because, you know, I went with him on it. I didn't judge him on it. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, that actually felt really, really good. Yeah. You know, I was really worried, though, because I thought, what am I doing? And then, but when it worked out this morning, I thought, brilliant. <laughs> but, you know, I just didn't know where I was going with any of this. <laughs> so um, I suppose my mind's expanding like the yeah. universe and I don't know where it's going, you know. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that because really it's, it's you know, my favorite definition of, of meditation these days is in fact aligned with this habituation to openness. Parenthetically, in relation to Tim's earlier question, I just want to throw this in. A synonym for emptiness is openness. So when you talk about habituation to openness, an inner rendering of that in relation to Tim's question is increased habituation to emptiness. So I just wanted to throw that in for him. But but yeah, this is exactly my my journey as well. That you know that we as we engage in these skillful means, they actually invite us sometimes with crowbars, sometimes with um, you know more compassionate, skillful ways to increasingly open the aperture of our awareness, open, open, open. And, you know, we, I think the attitude that you express is a really important one, just of insatiable curiosity. You know, in, in fact, I playfully say when, when people ask me like, well, I hear you're a Buddhist. Well, I, I, I now I, when I'm in a spunky mood, I'll say, well, you know, it's actually not quite true. I'm a curious, I'm a curious. Mm. I'm curious about the nature of mind and reality. And the Buddhists just seem to have a kind of cool thing, a couple of cool things to say about it. And so for me, it's like, you know, Bob Thurman talks about the, the cycle knot, you know, the, the, the intrepid, fearless explorer of the inner space of one's own mind. Mm. And so to me, it's this intrepid, fearless quality that is integral to, to successful journeys where you remain agnostic, humble, open. Um, you know, in the beginner's mind, there are many um, possibilities and the expert's mind, there are few. So maintain an open beginner's mind and the universe will continue to reveal itself to you. Thich Nhat Hanh says that it's actually at the moment that you think you really know something that your development stops. <laughs> yeah. That's a fantastic statement. Yeah. You know? It's when you think you finally know something that your development actually stops. And so therefore, you know, fundamentally, um, we should always remain incredibly humble, open, receptive thinking on one level that we really don't know anything. Um, what Dr. Frijan talked about is divine ignorance. And then from there, the world will continue to unfold before you. And then you'll know nothing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Migo. Yeah, nice Thanks. comment. Hi, Myra. 
my dear friend Myra from Michigan. Oh my goodness. What a, um, just as a mom, just a comment to the couple questions behind. Born and raised in Puerto Rico, I did not know the bunny. When I came here and I had children 30 so many years ago, <laughs> I had to get used to the bunny. But um, I think we have to trust children because imagination is so important and the bunny and whatever the, the, the traditions are, are part of the culture in time and place. And that's part of the identity and um, their imaginations run so wild. I mean, like imaginary friends. And I used to just play in their imagination. And I guess um, I remember being disappointed just from in the Christmas season when I discovered my parents. But I think that's part of the story. And, and, and then I came to kind of celebrate the bunny and they're 33 and I just sent a basket <laughs> this last week. <laughs> Um, so just to, for her, it is, I think that is, is part of our own story and a cultural story, but imagination and the story of the culture in the right perspective, children learn from us for what they observe and know what we say. And um, so it's a very complicated issue. So if, if it comes to the story of what it is, why it came about eventually is something that is discussed, then it becomes another one of those family tales. Um, that's my point in that one. <laughs> That's a wonderful contribution. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, you look great, by the way. You look very spring-like. Oh, well, but Michigan is 70. So imagine Michigan 70. We feel like we're in real oh <laughs> pure land. Already. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Myra. I really appreciate it. Oh, by the way, this weekend was just... It's, it's, this weekend was just fabulous. I think that there has to be... Oh, I, yeah. To see uh, Dr. Truman in the way that... Um, it just like, it blew my mind. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah. Myra's talking about a, a pure lamp thing I did with Bob. I thought it was the best one yet. Um, I mean, he like, you know, he, he was like super prepared. I thought his, his PowerPoint presentations were incredibly interesting. Yeah, I thought it was the best program we've done yet. So thanks for being there. Thanks for sharing that. It was cool. He's well, he's impressed with you. That's why yeah. <laughs> he had to prepare. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Let's hope. I thought, I thought it was... <laughs> The topic is so amazing. It was good. Thank you. And he rocked it. Thank so, you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Myra. Thanks for saying that. Okay. From Charles. Oh, wait. Um, if the story of the Easter bunny is empty, isn't the story of Buddhism also empty? Yes. Good for you. Yes. Everything's empty. And believe it or not, there's even a book by this title, The Emptiness of Emptiness. So, yes. Um, yeah, everything is empty, even empty emptiness itself. So I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to say along those lines, but um, Ho completely agree with you. But you know, here's the deal. The, the story of Buddhism is in fact a story, um, but Buddhism is aware that it's a story. It's just a better story. It's a story that sends you in the direction of truth, real news. And um, Buddhists are completely aware of that. That's why you get you know, teachings technically called, you know, non-affirming negations. Nothing's actually affirmed. Um, you get teachings on, uh, you know, self-liberate, even the antidote, that, that the, the Buddhist tradition is acutely aware that this is just a raft, again, mixing metaphors for taking you across the ocean of suffering. And then, you know, when you get across to the so-called other side, which is really not the other side, it's seeing this side as the other side, then you don't keep walking around with a raft on your shoulder, you let go of the raft. 
So fundamentally, emptiness is perhaps one of the most refined rafts to nowhere, a raft that carries you nowhere. Fantastic, we're now here. And then, you know, you, you just shed that as well. And then you end up just riding on fundamentally reality itself. So the Buddhists are, are aware that even the story of Buddhism is itself empty, indeed. Okay, anybody else? Questions, comments, jokes, offerings? Oh, I can go to the chat column. Also, um, oh, never mind. Oh, go ahead. Hand went up. Hand, hand went up, but now the hand's down. So. Oh, well, we'll bring your hand back up if you like. Otherwise, I'm going to go through this chat column. Um, yeah. Did the hand come back up? Oh, a bunch of hands came up. Uh oh, a bunch of hands. I knew I should have, I should have ran while I could. <laughs> There's uh, Wendy, Judith, and Sonia. Okay. Fire away, guys. Okay. Not all at once. First, Wendy. Oh, you have to unmute you. Wendy, you're still muted. You see that? Okay, we'll come back to you, Wendy. We'll jump over to Judith. Hi, Andy. Hi. Hi, Judith. Hi. Um, Andy, I was thinking about meditation and also, um, and also teachings. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what's more important, the teachings or meditation? I know they're both important, but it seems to be like you can't, there wouldn't be any point in going in going to teachings if you didn't meditate. And without the teachings, I don't know, maybe you can meditate more without the teachings, but it, it just, I just wondered what you thought about that. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, what do they say? You know, uh, meditation without the teachings can be blind. The teachings without meditation is lame. Um, so you need both. The teachings help you know where you're going and meditation gets you there, um, which as we saw earlier, gets you nowhere. So they're both critically important. Different, um, like for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism of the four schools, you know, two of the four, uh, that's my, those are my two lineages. They're known as more of the meditation or practice lineages, but just as powerful viable, you know, the like Geluk Sakya, which are more the study traditions, the scholastic traditions. And so why not engage both? Um, I think they're incredibly important because they both have their strengths and weaknesses. Again, if you're only uh, in, in, involved in study, um, you can just become then a mere philosopher and philosophy will never change you. <clears throat> you know, it may stimulate you do all these kind of intellectual thingies, but it, it fundamentally won't change you. If you're a meditator and you're not supporting, supplementing, augmenting your practice with the teachings, it's super easy to deceive yourself, to, to waste a ton of time getting lost in detours, called the sacks and traps. And so my, I, was, I was trained with uh, equal emphasis on both. On one level, you could say, yes, there, there seems to be in the contemplative meditative traditions so some superior or um, increased emphasis on meditation. 
And I, I think there's some real power and validity to that. And this is what Judith, you heard me talk many times is that, you know, the three prajnas pedagogical approach, right? Caring, contemplating, meditating, ingest, digest, metabolize. If you just stay at the level of teaching, hearing, you're just ingesting, 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 ingesting. And you can just become a fat scholar. Um, you know, you want to get it into your system, into your body, contemplation, and then meditation. It's only at the level of meditation that these teachings soak into you, become you. And so I, I, I'm a, a profound proponent of both. You know, I study and practice as if my hair was on fire. It's only game in town. So why not do both? Why not yeah. do both? And, and so you really, I mean, just by going to the teachings, you wouldn't ever be able to be enlightened, right? You have to meditate in order to become enlightened. Well, that's an interesting question. I think eventually there's another way to say that. You, you have to release all conceptuality. And so th if you call that meditation, then, then that's meditation. But, but here's the point. Fundamentally, when you're stuck at the level of the map, the map is never the territory. I don't care how subtle it is. It's never the territory. You know, it's, very, it's a very subtle diving board platform. And eventually you have to leap. Can you take an instantaneous leap just by studying into full enlightened state? I suppose, yes, theoretically, that's possible. But experientially, it doesn't seem to work that way because of the power of habit, karma. Oops. You know, there's just so much stuff that needs to be purified, detoxified, released. So theoretically, what you say is possible. I've never seen it actually happen in reality. I'm sure somewhere, someone um, has professed that truth, but I would be pretty suspicious to that effect. You have to transcend concept. You have to transcend intellect. Um, and, you know, I don't care how you do it. I don't care what you call it. If you call it meditation, then we'd say you have to meditate. If something else will get you there, it doesn't matter. Um, but somehow or the other, you know, you don't get stuck on the map. That's the point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Welcome. Yeah. All right. We'll bring in uh, Wendy next. I think I succeeded in unmuting. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. I'm on my phone and it's not as easy as on a computer. Oh, good. So <clears throat> this may be a little off track, but I'm curious. For the last year, I've been studying mediumship oh, nice. as part of my interest in all states of mind. Mm -hmm. And what I found is uh, that I, I can absolutely connect with departed spirits and identify evidence that's recognizable to the people across from me. Um, and that it's very akin to a meditative state that allows me to do that. I, I have to put aside my ego or no connection exists. Uh, and that th this meditation and these classes are really helpful to me. Uh, and What's interesting is the teachers of mediumship kind of don't believe in meditation. I don't, because they really don't know what it's about. You know, they, they've taken their track, their life down a different track and they some idea that's not accurate. Okay. But uh, I, I just wonder how is that possible? You know, if there is no continuity that uh, we can, see someone's life and per feel their personality and you know years after they've died uh and that they're 
apparently still here for their loved ones and want their loved ones to know that. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, this is a tricky one. First of all, I, again, I'm just going to um, speak what comes to mind. This is this is a, a tricky. It's a rich topic. Um, it's tricky. It's it's uh, full of landmines, but landmines are cool, right? <laughs> they actually might blow something up, and you might actually see something. So, so a couple things. Um, first, is it in fact? Are you in fact, or any medium, truly in contact with this this alleged? entity. I'm not contesting it. That's a very open question to me. Um, that's the first thing. Is in, is in fact that an accurate phenomenology or is there some kind of projection, imputation, reification taking place? So that's the one thing. Secondly, is that, you know, in, in the, I can speak with a little bit more authority about the Buddhist approach to this than others, because that's just what I've studied for, you know, decades. Mm -hmm. And that according to their view of mind and reality, especially the Bardo teachings that really come into play, to a certain extent, there does seem to be, uh, for lack of a you know, better phrase, kind of statute of limitations, how long someone can be disembodied and floating around in a, in a, in a, in a non-embodied form. But there are, um, you know, usually within 49 days, and again, we shouldn't take any of this stuff literally because of the force of, of karma and whatnot, these beings will become ensconced in a new form um, and then it becomes a little bit harder to access them. But that does not mean that you cannot, in fact, access dimensions of that mind stream, what's called citta santana. That there, mm -hmm. you know, even though a, a mind stream may be embodied, it doesn't mean it can't be accessed. And even though you're accessing, you know, even though that person is living in a particular frequency in a new form, they still have these dimensions of their being in their substrate mind. And so perhaps this is all hypothetical. I have really nothing but my own intuitions to rest on here. Perhaps somehow you're, you or whoever else may be tuning into these substrate dimensions. That's one thing. Second thing is it's also possible when someone dies that they don't know they're dead and, and they can hang out, you know, they go well past this kind of 49 day they can hang out um, in, in these sort of disembodied states, sometimes for years, sometimes much longer. And so is in fact, then are you contacting someone in that arena? Who on earth outside of a fully awakened one can really say? Um, I certainly can't. So theoretically, this stuff does have a place. I, I, I could make some educated guesses as to what's happening. But I, I'm also, I, I, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to say too much um, because it just isn't territory that, that I have a, a ton of traffic in. Um, to me, what's more magical about this is how it points to the wonders of mind and reality, how it channel, uh, challenges conditional status and you know, a little bit like what um, I guess it was Robert was saying earlier, how it just you know, blows open our horizons as to what's real. But the question for me becomes what is in fact real here? Um, are we in fact engaging in some type of process that is in fact real or is it in fact, are there some confabulations and light going on? I'm not going to judge that. I don't know. I'm just saying um, I'm a little bit on the more cautious side around these sorts of things. And, and, you know, because it's again, one of these massively beautiful complex questions that sort of stops my mind. What is it with you guys today? You're, you're like throwing me these questions that are like, Let's just talk about, you know, the masters or you know, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, beautiful question there. I'm not sure where else I can go with that unless you have a follow-up or some clarity around that. 
Well, I, I can tell you that it's a very different state of mind when you're being psychic and reading the person that's sitting there versus yeah. connecting with a spirit. So I see some comments by people about ESP. It feels really different. Uh, it, it is just another state of mind. And if, you know, it's no more real than this state of mind is what I'll say. You know, if this isn't real, that's not real, but it, it's all part of the playground yeah. that's open to us. I think I would probably rest with that. It's all part of the playground, you know, whether it, whether it has, you know, this kind of ontological veracity is the same as it does here. This is, this is a hotly debated, contested point. But I think I love what you said there at the end. It's all part of this infinite playground. And if we just maintain an open heart and mind, you know, we make ourselves available. Parenthetically, I do have to say, I think I don't have to say, but I feel compelled to say that these, these types of relative cities, while they are of some relative benefit on, on the Buddhist path, they're also, there's also warnings about these sort of things as being sorcerer's traps. In other words, it's extremely easy to be seduced into these types of talents slash powers. Um, and, and fundamentally one can lose one's way. So these are what I call relative cities completely viable within the trajectory of service and benefit to others. And I suspect that's how you're using it. And that's beautiful. But they can also detour one if they're not related to properly from the real important point, which is absolute city, real power, which, which goes beyond even what you're talking about. So I, I, I find that helpful to throw into the mix that it's contextualized. This is part of the shamanic tradition, the oracles. And I mean, Tibetan Buddhism has all kinds of these sorts of stories but they're always secondary to the main process of the absolute powers, which, which go deeper than that. And this is one reason why mediums, classic mediums and the like, in my opinion, maybe um, unwittingly short, um, shortchanging themselves um, because of that seduction of that type of ability and power. But that's just, my, that's just my view. So take it or leave it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pierre. I got time for maybe two or three more. Um, uh, from Kamala, then we'll go to Keenan. Kamala, many of the mantras and practices, Mahamudra, implore protection. Could you riff on intentions for protection possibly related to fear? Thank you. No construction here too loud for online. I'm not sure, okay. not sure what that's about. Um, yeah, there, there is a, it sounds like you're talking about protector principle. Um, well, you know, I mean, there's several things that, I, that come to mind here. Uh, there is a place for protection, um, relative and absolute. So let's just go right back again. This is why I love Tim's question at the outset, his, his, his question about emptiness. What Tim was pointing to, what the teachings on emptiness point to, and this is why emptiness is so important, is ultimate protection. That, you know, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so the ultimate protection is understanding the empty nature of mind and reality. Um, if you really understand that, nothing can hurt you because there is no thing out there. And so this is super important. That is the ultimate level of protection. And that's why understanding that supersedes everything. The relative levels, this is where things like mantras come in, literally means mind protection. This is where literally protector principle, you know, establishing a relationship with these protective energetics, deities and the like, they have their place. 
And so um, if you are a student in fact, Kamala, as you seem to suggest of, of things like Mahamudra or you know, practices of that like, then you probably already know that there are reasons why these principles are actually engaged in on the path. So that's, that's what comes to mind around that. Um, protection possibly related to fear. Well, I would say, you know, don't protect yourself from fear. Um, protect yourself from an inappropriate relationship to fear. Because, you know, what is the nature of fear altogether? Um, that to me is the more interesting thing. Protectors are not designed, and this was a big opening for me. I used to think, you know, decades ago when I was given all these protector practices, oh, they're going to protect my little thing, my little path, my little comfort plan. No, they're not. No, they're not. The protectors are not there to give you um, what you want. They're there to give you what you need. And so therefore, when you establish a relationship to these things, you got to read the small print. Because if you think they're somehow going to keep your life altogether and cozy and pay your bills and, and your taxes and stuff like that, extreme examples, you're in for a bit of a surprise. Sometimes by engaging in these protectors, protectors are wrathful, um, fierce, um, and they're designed to wake you up. And so protector principle there, sometimes it can be completely opposite of what you think protection is. They are not going to protect your ego. They're not going to protect your comfort plan. They're going to protect your spirit, your, 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 your true nature. And therefore, protectors can be completely antithetical to what we think of as protection. So uh, this is another one of these really fantastic big questions. Um, you know, again, I wouldn't necessarily um, supplicate them or relate to these energies in terms of doing things like transcending fear. I wouldn't do that because fear can be, if it's engaged properly, one of the most powerful um, factors in, 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 in evolution and growth altogether, going into your fear, not away from it. Don't be protected from it. Be protected from, from not understanding it properly. If you go into your fear properly, I've used this as a maxim for, for a large part of my life. This is where real growth takes place. So this, you know, understanding protector principle, both absolute and relative levels, super important, beautiful, deep question. Um, it's one of the frustrations I get when I get all these just terrific questions and I, I have to be a little bit terse with my responses. So I hope that's okay. Oh yeah, so here's a comment from my dear friend, Joe. This is good from Jungle Control Lodo Tai. The one who meditates without the view is like a blind man wandering the plains. There is no reference point for where the true path is. The one who does not meditate but merely holds the view is like a rich man tethered by stinginess. He is unable to bring appropriate fruition to himself and others. Joining the view and meditation is the holy tradition. Amaho, JKLT. Thank you, Joseph. That's awesome. So maybe one more from Sarah, then one uh, um, and Keenan, and then um, these last two weekends, this one and this one, I have a, I need to run in, in uh, like five minutes. So Sarah, didn't uh, Trungpa Mache say that with that if without study you have stupid meditators, and without meditation you have smart assholes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know that one. Um, maybe. Yeah. Um, maybe. <laughs> okay. Keenan, far away. This will be our last one for now. <laughs> <clears throat> Great comments today, guys. Far away, Keenan. Keenan, for some reason, we can't hear you, uh, even though you are unmuted. Hello. Hello? Yep, there you go. Oh, sorry about that. 
So hi, Andrew. Uh, just wanted to quickly check something with you. Yeah. Because we were talking about imagination. And uh, something I've been thinking about is a creation as a creative act. Uh, to think about a create, a creation as a creative process. And so I've been seeing that the, perhaps one could look at the spiritual journey as maximizing creativity. Um, and I was wondering kind of what your thoughts are on that. And I, I do understand that this process of uh, becoming creative is not independent of the identity we hold dearly to and uh, perhaps involves uh, dismantling of it as well. But um, I, I was wondering if you had thought of the spiritual unfoldment as a creative process. Oh, or... absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Positively. Yeah. I mean, to remember Jake talked about it as in, in the deepest sense as art and everyday life, you know, actually your, your life becomes your painting. Your life becomes your poetry. Your life becomes your music. Your life becomes your art, your book. And oh, so much to say here, my friend, you know, um, even on a, on a, a really scientific level, um, you know, Hoffman and all these other really smart cognitive neuroscientists run around saying, completely agree that, you know, we are each creative geniuses. You know, right now, we, we, whether we know it or not, we're creating worlds. So we're, we're actually involved in, in, in levels of creativity and, and powers of mind that we're hardly aware of. That every, every time we move, every time we speak, every time we open our eyes, we enact, we bring forth a world. No kidding, literally. Um, and so on that level, creativity is, is already taking place. And so when you're talking about maximizing creativity, I completely agree with you, but with an interesting little flip. Because then what you're doing is instead of creating samsara, you're creating nirvana, right? Right? That's the flip. And actually nirvana itself is not a creation. Again, that would imply that it's something different. Samsara is the creation. That's a really crappy piece of art. Nirvana is actual just radiance, anonymous, unsigned, unautographed, um, radiant expression of the creative power of mind. And so, you, you, you know, you, while you can say that samsara is a creation, you have to be very careful when you say nirvana is a creation because mostly it's a negation of samsara creation, right? And so then what are you left with? you're left with this natural radiant shine play of the mind that we could then talk about as art in the deepest sense, that your life then becomes a true expression of that which is. But you are no longer the creator um, in the you know, kind of traditional sense. You become you know, simultaneously the expression of, of that creation. So yes, uh, I mean, on one level, completely agree with you. And, and we can therefore use even provisional um, instances of creativity and flow states when creation usually comes out, when you step outside of yourself and real art comes in, you can use those as intimations for this type of ultimate creativity that real art, real creativity takes place when you're gone. And any real artist will tell you that I didn't compose that. Even, you know, great athletes when they perform in the zone, they'll go, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't play that tennis match. Somebody else did. I didn't play that golf round. Somebody else did. That's the type of creativity that you can tune into um, by entering into flow states and, and stuff like that. And that's really quite beautiful because then it gives you a sense of what it's like to have this ultimate creativity. Then it doesn't have to be just a golf game or a tennis game or in music. You realize that that kind of flow state becomes just a natural expression regardless of its expression.
Um, so something like that, Amigo, that's what comes to mind. But this that's is why brilliant. the artist's life is so beautiful, you know, until, again, you know, the, the most genuine artists are the most humble, um, you know, just marvelous creators. But unfortunately, and again, I, I'm, I'm trained as a musician. I went to one of the best music schools in the country. And, and a lot of my buds are, are, you know, like international conductors and concert pianists and the like. And I hope they're not listening, but they're among the most egoic people I know because they, you know, they don't, their art, you know, and this is why some people wrestle so much because that, that genius flows through them. And then they try to label it. They try to sign it. They try to make it their own. And therefore, instead of transcending the art, they, in, the art inflates them. And so that's the, the, the very powerful near enemy of that type of creativity and the creative genius and that pejorative sense that then looks down upon the unwashed masses who can't understand the genius of the creator. I mean, like, give me a break. Um, but, you know, hey, I've been around it. So I think on one level, what you're saying is really quite beautiful. Yes, you can absolutely look at it as art in everyday life, ultimate radiance of the expressive nature of reality for sure. Um, and so if you look at it along those lines, that's a fantastic way. Read, read Trump Rinpoche's stuff on this. He was really brilliant on this stuff. Okay, art in everyday thank you. Life. Really great stuff. Terrific, everybody. These three questions um, that, that came in, we'll put them at the top for next week. I kind of need to run. We're almost at the hour and a half mark anyway, which is usually when I need to go. So thank you everybody for joining us. I love these little sessions. See you next week for further adventures. And thanks for the really great round of questions and comments today. I love it. Bye everybody.